Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Aaron finally gets his patio furniture, only to find out that capitalism has failed him yet again. We chase fatherhood through the labyrinth of minnows to the barren deserts of Mad Max. And as we examine patriarchy, we slip across Freud. Blankets. Moving blankets. Yeah, moving blankets for this episode. Yeah, it's a bit. It's an interesting space. You've done a really good job, kind of putting this together as an impromptu site. So we're actually we're recording this from the sociology lounge yeah. at Carleton University. Yeah, it's your uh, alma mater. Yeah, the old uh, stomping grounds, I suppose. How, how how is it to be back? Yeah, but <laughs> the same sigh. to have been here. <laughs> Long sigh. Oh yeah. You know, it's full of asbestos and the uh, yeah. And it smells of broken dreams. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, yeah, and the reason why we're in the lounge is um, it, so it's um, a Monday, and I, I wasn't expecting someone to be in the shared offices at seven thirty p.m. But someone was, you know, dedicated soul. But yeah, well, this is this is um, there's something about this. There's a certain degree of placelessness of yeah. the academic today. And the funny thing is that it's not just rooted today. I don't know if you've ever read it or seen it but there's a film called satyricon satyricon oh yeah you've talked to me and about it's satyricon. basically about two poets and poets during the greek period are are basically scholars yeah, yeah. and there's nowhere for them to go and it's it's fat they can kind of these characters who basically accumulate money they value they're vulgar they're philistines but basically ultimately it's a society that they say is reduced to simply accumulation of wealth and so there's there's nowhere for these two poets to go so they just kind of like they show up at carlton yeah they show up <laughs> So, so to all the lost poets, they just kind of show up at Carlton. That's great. <laughs> Seems to be the case. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, n- enough about that. Uh, how's been your week? What's new? Well, it's been it's been an interesting week. Uh, it's been busy. Um, yeah, you know. Have, have Have you gotten your patio furniture? I've been dying to ask you. Yeah. So this is so. In the end, um, no, no, yes, and no. Um, yes, I, I just drove down to the, to the Home Depot and I just picked it up, picked up patio furniture there. That wasn't actually the patio furniture we ordered. Um, I made an exchange from the patio furniture, canceled the order for the home delivery. And then a week later it, it showed up anyways. What? Yeah. So, so then, it ended up showing up after it was canceled. How, how, what, what kind of business are these people running? It just didn't work. And so then the funny thing is, is it, was, it actually fell to us to find a way to return it. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, just complete failure all around. Well, then the, the funny the funny thing, too, is the actual patio furniture we did buy from the store and brought it back. It was obviously in a box and it was missing a chair. Oh, so boy. Some of them were just not really meant to have patio furniture. No, it's, I guess at not. At the end of the day, it's fine. It's a pretty minor problem and it was yeah. resolved, but it's... I don't know. I don't know why you're supposed to have your modern capitalist system without this movement of goods. Well, it's funny because since the last episode, Mel and I have been really paying attention to shipping. Mm. I don't know why. It's one of those things that enters in, into your consciousness, I guess. Um, but I needed to order several books. So as as you probably know, I'm working on, um, you know, starting back up working on my, my dissertation. And I've kind of 
you know, uh, sketched out a new track. So I kind of need to get into literature a bit more. And the, my, my first foray, whenever I need a new literature or when I get into new literature, is to always look to chapters. They kind of have these like, you know, kind of, I don't want to call them pedestrian, but generalized histories, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, researched, but they're not the academic papers or books that you'd find. Um, yeah. You know, they're just a bit more general. So, um, you know, I go on to, to, to chapters Indigo and I find a couple books and all of a sudden, like there's some, there's a part of me that says, have it shipped to a store. Like, don't trust it to come to your front door. So, so I, that's what I ended up doing. I sent a whole bunch of stuff, uh, to the store instead of, uh, to my front door. It's, it's, it's weird because I didn't trust that it would get to me for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Sorry. I've, I've spoiled your, your oh, e shopping no, no. experience. It hasn't just been you. Like we had our own troubles trying yeah, to get you stuff. That, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah. I, I don't know why that is. I, I kind of prefer if you just go back and buy physical things and physical shops, but I like going in and touching and feeling something, you know, looking at it, stretching it, whatever. You know, Lucy and I were actually talking about this and we thought that you might in the future, like in 10 years, see a split. So I don't know if you noticed this, but Amazon recently acquired um, Whole Foods. Did you notice that? I did. Yeah. I saw yeah. That. And so part of that is Amazon's going to probably try out its new system called Amazon Go. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, a personless shopping experience, right? Yeah. So now you just go into a store and it basically deducts money from your smartphone as you walk in and every item's tracked and you just take it out. You don't need to go to a cashier or anything. But anyways, what might kind of happen is like you could think about, you know, if drones actually kind of take off as ordering and you start to order your food online, yeah, yeah. you think there'd probably be a very big cultural division, of course, across wealth. But the other element too would be that a lot of people might be comfortable ordering non-perishable goods yeah, online. Sure. But, you know, I, I kind of prefer when you go get fruits and vegetables or meat to see it yeah. and touch it, right? Yeah, especially meat. So you might end up with this kind of, you know, revitalization of the marketplace for select products. Yeah. And, you know, so you already have farmer's markets and stuff popping up, but you might find like Whole Foods or Loblaws or another show, sorry, another store, basically setting up their own marketplaces for that purpose because the actual physical store will probably decline. The The other kind of thing that I've noticed, and I've noticed it a little bit more in vape shops, mm. um, is that they have kind of a limited product line in a display case. So you can pick it up, you can look at it, you can try it. But then if you actually want it, they tell you to order it from their website. <laughs> and like the idea is that these are small stores and they don't have like the, the capacity to store stock. They don't want to take on the insurance risk of having massive amounts of uh, stock, in, you know, in a brick and mortar. So they contract out these kind of secure uh, warehouses and it's actually like contracted out shipping. So you basically, and I've seen these companies, they're a little bit, they're, they're not well known, but you can find them and they take care of your stock management. So basically you set up your website, they get the order, they'll ship it out, they'll hold on to the stock and they have all the risk of holding on to the stock. And all you have to do is kind of try to peddle it. That's quite smart. Yeah. I mean, I think too, that's, that's an interesting comment though, but I, what we're witnessing is a shift from supply side aesthetics yeah, yeah. to demand 
right? And so you think that's why the department stores are getting killed and part of it, what's going with them though. And if you watch that, you watch shows or things or just think about your experiences going to an Eden's or a Sears when they're still around is that you had these you know, vast arrays of clothing yep. laid out and like yep. we've shipped, we've totally moved away from that. Yeah, bye-bye Sears. Bye-bye Sears. And like the, what's probably next on the horizon is people will be able to, you know, digitally or virtually kind of see a product in their own home. Right, customized down to them. That's kind of where like the retail experience will probably go, and so as a result, like it's it's perfectly demand side aesthetics. Yep. Yeah. So, I don't know. Wait until we get three D printers, and we can just print a little mock up of whatever we want to buy. Yeah, I'm bummed about the whole, uh, what will probably be the outcome with a three D printer in the sense that like that's a perfect like decentralized model where Absolutely. you could have like you could just sort of escape the yeah. capitalist kind of constraints around production and. Yeah. and Use, but I mean, ultimately, what's probably going to happen is it's just going to be easier to purchase things at various locations and lower costs. But you're going to pay still. Like you're still basically what I'm trying to say is like chances are there'll be intellectual patent rights for each bit of code that'll oh, be for I'm printing sure. a product, which I'm means sure. like you're not actually going to escape that. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. My pessimism but, about but things on, that never happened. So, but on the other side, uh, Costco wholesale is like massively expanding. And they're like this basically warehouse shopping experience, right? Yeah. Um, and they're taking over. So like on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have this contingent of people, probably middle class uh, or wealthy, who are able to walk into a warehouse and drop, you know, four or 500 bucks mm-hmm. a shot. Um, but Costco's doing really well. Yeah. So. I think I think you probably, yeah, that's an interesting kind of, you're right, it's like a middle class kind of like, you know, yeah. you've got two to probably two or three kids or something, you've got a family, right? And that's exactly. why you go to Costco, yeah. you buy in bulk. Yeah. And yeah, as uh, things get more expensive and costly, you'll probably see those things continue to take off as people continue to try to be middle class. Yeah. And if anybody that we mentioned wishes to uh, finance this podcast, uh, in a second, I'll tell you how to reach us. <laughs> uh, but welcome, everyone. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. Um, we have a special guest co-host uh, with us. I'm Philip Primo, and we're joined by... Aaron Henry. And Aaron's with us for the third installment of his uh, mini-series. Uh, so if you're new uh, to the show, this is the podcast that looks at social sciences, humanities, and arts, and we do it through connecting the published world to your everyday life. We review books, we review articles, and we put them in conversation with stuff that we feel can appeal to you or and that you can kind of, you know, know, have gone through, could be a feeling, could be a particular moment in life. So Aaron has put together a mini-series um, that uh, we started looking at a few weeks ago. The first episode was around survival and the millennial condition. The second episode picked up on this notion of the wolf. And today I think we're going to be talking about uh, the fatherland. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. So this is, um, this is a slight, I mean, what I'd like to kind of keep things together sort of like coherently as we move along, like there are these linkages between the episodes and if you recall, we last left off with The Shining, really. We did, yeah. Yep. And that was an example of this kind of merger between um, the characterization of an individual as a wolf, but also uh, there's a very strong kind of portrayal and critique of the patriarch in The Shining as well. Right. right. You're ultimately, you're, you're dealing with uh, domestic violence, abuse, yes. sexual yep. abuse as yep. well, and some, anal- and some analyses, right? And ultimately, murder. And so... This kind of takes us into this other theme called the fatherland and revisiting uh, what seems to be a resurgence. And it's definitely never gone away 
that's for sure. But there's definitely a resurgence around sort of uh, authoritarianism and patriarchal power. And that patri- I mean, we're going to sort of explore that expressed upon multiple lines. But initially, the whole idea for this, for this ep- uh, sort of episode came out of a failed essay. All right. Before we get into that failed, because we all have failed essays, oh, I want to tell everyone that uh, how they can reach us. So we are on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher, we are on Google Play. And uh, I, Matt, who's our regular uh, co-host, isn't here tonight. He's expecting his first child. Um, but Matt has been uh, dutifully manning our new Facebook page. Uh, so you can find our Facebook page at The SimPod, all one word. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about that failed essay. Cool. I'm the soul challenger, I'm the real damage. Now behold, and cold in the stream Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, Philip Primo here, joined with Aaron Henry, and today is uh, the Aaron's third installment of his mini series. We're going to be talking about uh, the fatherhood, um, the fatherland, that kind of stuff. Uh, Aaron uh, had a story for us about uh, a failed essay. Sure. So uh, why don't you lead us into the discussion with that? Sure. So um, I suppose kind of the, the reason why we sort of returned to this theme of the fatherland was that it was actually the name of an essay I tried to write, and I kind of found it in my document folder a, a while ago. Oh, yeah, that, found, those famous folders. Yeah. yeah. So I was digging back through it, and part of the reason I, I was digging back through it was sort of the intent of trying to, trying to look for it to see if it was still there, is that I actually tried to pen that essay um, before my first daughter was born in 2013 and my wife and I are expecting our second child and um, that whole essay actually kind of came out of this sort of bizarre problem there was kind of a couple problems expressed in it I was trying to express it and it didn't work ultimately which is why it just why it's called a failed essay yeah that's just it Um, but Ultimately, one thing that I had the experience of, and it's I think it's an insight, there's um, it's a quote by Brett, Brett, I think, Bertolt Brett, who kind of mentions the same thing. Uh, but ultimately, we have an interesting problem as children. And our problem as children is that we don't see our parents as people. <laughs> uh, like human beings? Like we don't really see them as human beings. And in some ways, this is a... A glorious thing in the sense that we have a tendency to embellish our parents, to ascribe to them, you know, sort of supernatural traits in some ways. And that goes both ways. That goes in terms of we can elevate them. We can also make them out to be far worse than they actually right, were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though we might be aware that we do that, we don't realize we do that until that supernatural power is uh, diminished and ended and ultimately that's usually once your parent dies so um what you're saying is we don't necessarily see our parents as parents until their death we see our parents only as parents until their death and then and and then then we start to realize that there's a human being oh okay 
And so this is kind of this thing that when I was thinking about becoming a father, um, was that this seemed to be a challenge, was that I had sort of wondered as soon as, and it works the other way as well, and that's quite important too, and this is something that I can say, is that I, as much as I try, I see my daughter as my daughter, right? Right, yeah. yeah. And so this is this other kind of relationship is that, I mean, and eventually that's fine for now because I, there's a whole deal of guidance and care that needs to be exercised over a three-year-old. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when she gets older, 20s, 30s, it's going to be very annoying for her that I don't see her as anything but a daughter. Right, yeah. And try as you do, you probably will fail to achieve that sort of reflex, reflex, reflection. And so for me, this was one angle was that I somehow desperately kind of hoped that I could write this essay before she was born, which means that I'd be speaking to her not as her father, but simply as me. Right. right? Uh, yeah. And there's um, like what comes to mind when you say that is an episode in Star Trek The Next Generation uh, where Edison Crusher's father leaves him uh, a note. Uh, it's basically like a video thing before... He was born basically saying, hey, uh, you don't know me yet. Uh, you're not even in the world yet, but I'm your dad. Uh, here's a little something about me. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea. And of course, what that might work in case of you never actually meet your kid. Right. And I think you mentioned, too, that there's sort of a many Greek myths and Greek stories, especially around the Trojan War. This was actually something that occurred was that there'd be these yeah, letters yeah. left for basically. And Atwood does such a wonderful job of critiquing this in Persephone. Right. But it's yeah. ultimately... Penelope, um, where, you know, you leave pregnant women and children at home and you yep. go to war, right? Yep. And so the nice thing about Atwood's work is she kind of says, well, what's happening at home as you wait here for right. Odysseus to get his shit together and come back, right? right? Yeah. And yeah. Like, so it's, it's very, very well done. Yeah. But the point is, too, is that that might work if you never actually, unfortunately, meet your parent. But once you meet, this is where my, the project fell apart, is that obviously, for me, I could give this to, to Harriet and say, this is for me before I knew you. But for her, it's like, well, I'm reading it and I know you now. And this is just your usual shit, dad. Like, what is right, this like, nonsense? What is this? Yeah. So that, that was one way in which that project fell apart. But the other, the other expression there, and it's one that I'm kind of revisiting, is that uh, I would have to say that there's, I have, I and both, both my, my wife too, have had a lot of anxiety about uh, forming a family. And for me, there's a lot of anxiety because there's a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of pressures. There's, uh, it raises the stakes so much yeah. in relationships. It does yeah. all these really complicated things. But one thing for me that was also worrisome was that in a lot of ways, and we have a lot of interesting social, social theory on this, but the family is actually sort of a site of sociopathic behavior. And I don't mean that. I don't mean that in a perverse way really like but what i do mean is like one thing people will say to you is that you know when you're about to become a parent is that there's nothing you won't do for your children yeah there's that classic uh you know i'd, I'd kill anybody to protect my child uh instinct from both mother and father exactly and if you're somebody who is say aligned towards kind of a socialist outlook or a, an outlook at the very least that thinks for communal action, thinks about the importance of solidarity. That's actually a very scary thing to be told. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually Hannah Arendt uh, does a very nice job of pointing out that of some of the most murderous and bloodthirsty members of the Reich that would go out and they'd make these public policies, these programs that would eliminate hundreds of thousands and millions of people. 
they were devoted family men. Right, yeah. yeah. And that's this kind of possibility is that you can sort of, on the one hand, I guess what the point there that I'm trying to make is that they lead this rich inner life, this rich inner private life with their children, and they'd be caring and devoted and, and nurturing. But that same sort of connection also might meant that they were allowed to retreat from the public sphere. They're able to retreat from the world of communal action. And so in that sense, there is a risk that families can become a very apolitical and asocial site. It's a risk. It's not a guarantee. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that um, little story, and we hadn't talked about this before, but um, uh, earlier in the week, uh, Mel and I, my wife and I, uh, were rewatching for, I think, maybe the fourth time, uh, The West Wing. And uh, we were watching um, the episode where uh, Zoe Bartlett goes missing. And um, so the, the setup is uh, president, the president's daughter is kidnapped. Uh, but the same night, Toby, who is a senior staff member for the president, is having twins. And his wife goes into labor. And, well, not wife, they're not married, but his partner. And, um, you know, his twins are born on the same night that the president's daughter is taken. And there's this great scene where, you know, the president is basically telling everyone, I'm not sure I can continue leading the world or leading the, you know, what's going on because of what I could do to the world. Like I could, you know, go and bomb shit up to get my, my kid back and all this. So remove me from power. And Toby has this great line where he says, you know, I've known my kids for 45 minutes and there's nothing that I wouldn't do to keep them safe or to get them back, including bombing a country. Yeah. So, and Toby is exactly what you just kind of described. You know, he's this kind of more communal socialist sort of character and then had great anxiety over his kids. He sits down with Leo talks about how he doesn't think he can love his kids. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't know why I'm talking about no, the West Wing, but I think no, it's related. Well, and I think this is, and we'll kind of maybe touch upon him again later, but this is, this is actually a longstanding, what Freud identifies as a longstanding tension between Eros, so that's love between individuals and social bonds. And that's Eros? E-R-O-S. And civilization. And his claim is that for modern civilization to exist, to function in a way that we behave cordially towards each other, that we obey laws, and that we basically don't just engage, you know, Freud's very pessimistic, engage in yeah, mayhem yeah. and murder, requires that the bonds between individuals, uh, love between individuals and the family is relatively weakened in relationship to this social bond to what would be considered a state construction. So, so is he saying that the state replaces the family bond or that the state overpowers those family bonds? In order to be successful, the state has to overpower those family bonds. Whoa. To an extent, it, doesn't, it can't eliminate them because if it eliminates them, then people won't form families and they won't come together. But the important point, and, this is, and there's so many different television shows about this and books about this and movies, but basically is that you must form allegiance to the state before you form allegiance to a family, Right is the idea, is that there's always a conflict between the individual and the need to protect their family or to do right by their family and what's in the interest of the state. So in something like the construction of patriotism, is that, would that fit in with um, what Freud is kind of saying? Well, this is, so this is sort of the interesting thing about Freud, and we'll, I want to touch upon him again in this episode because he's, he's a bizarre character in so many ways, but he's got some, he does have some interesting insights during the time that he's writing, but... One thing that he's very concerned about is basically the relationship between patriarchal power and state authoritarianism. And this was something else that kind of happened with this essay was 
at one point kind of revisiting it was a strange image. And it's kind of this image of something that could be possible that probably happened, but you can't actually guarantee ever did. But this idea that you might see a, you know, a young man in some foreign field fighting some war and get shot, falls face down on the earth. And, you know, as his brain starts to slowly basically shut off and the neurons fire off and the synapses all go, at some point in his brain, there'd be this little piece that would talk about for the fatherland, right? And especially if he was actually German, this would be the truth is that they basically right, were yeah, told yeah. to fight and die for the fatherland. And so you have to, th I kind of imagine that, what's that project? What's that project that's able to put somewhere in your gray matter, a notion of an allegiance to something called the fatherland yeah, yeah. that would lead you to war and would also, whether you thought about it or not, would exist in your dying brain and would have led you to that situation. And this is kind of, this is a longstanding kind of theme is that how do you end up with people going to war? How do you end up with people committing violence? And part of, if we explore this, there is sort of an interesting lineage here around the fatherland as an important site. So for instance... Yeah, okay. I, I, I can see what you're saying about this now. So there's a few, there's a few... Um, states that actually do refer to themselves as fatherlands. So the Reich is an obvious one, uh, but Estonia does. Okay. I think Sweden does as well. Sweden. At one point, it's in the, it's in the anthem. So you can say, um, you know, it's obviously the more correct and less loaded term to refer to a relationship between an individual and the state. What is it? Uh, I think motherland. Motherland would also be, but it was Russia's, and that's also got some very interesting connotations in terms of reproduction and power but the other example would be be a patriot right yeah oh yeah 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 and so i thought about that and the interesting thing about the word patriot is that it's actually derived from greek it's got greek etymology and it is roughly related to the word patrios and patrios sorry it roughly translates patrios yeah okay translates to love of one's fathers love of one's fathers so the root of patriot is actually a connection to, again, some sort of patriarchal figure. And, you know, uh, we can probably retrace the etymology even more than that. But in the context of the United States, we always say the founding fathers. Indeed we do. Um, and so this gets to this kind of interesting, what I thought was sort of this interesting problematic. Because on the one hand, the way the traditional family is constructed is that it's led by a patriarch. This isn't an endorsement of that at all. It's just simply the fact that that's conventionally how it's understood, right? And we're all, I think there's some right, very yeah. interesting cultural critiques, and there's not just cultural critiques, there's actually some concerted efforts to move away from that model in obviously a variety of forms. Yeah. Um, one of the kind of most interesting things that I've kind of come across on my radar is intentional families. You heard of that? Uh, intentional families? So the idea is that we don't, obviously the longstanding kind of claim is that we don't choose our families, right? Our, you know, we're just born into a relationship. Yeah, we don't choose our parents. But this idea is that you would have groups of individuals who come together, who, you know, you could be, for instance, you could be in a relationship with somebody and have a kid, but the people you'd surround in those kids and you share a house with or share a life with would be selected. So you have people who basically, you don't have grandparents necessarily. You've got people that you've picked to be part of this intentional family. Okay. So it's a way of kind of disrupting this notion of kind of social bonds that are created by bloodlines and creating more of, again, the word is intentional, selective, selecting these social ties that you think would be the most beneficial and nurturing to your kid, I guess. So uh, this might be an aside from what, 
um, were intended to talk about today. But uh, it seems like, um, on the one hand, when you choose your siblings in this form, you're giving up the ability or you're giving up those social skills that are needed to deal with those siblings. Yes. Because, like, okay. This is the flip side, right? Is that basically, and there's always, this is kind of this interesting claim or this interesting element is that the families are, I think, I don't really like them, but Zizek kind of makes this claim about liminal dirt. But the idea is all the families are messy and complicated, yeah. right? And sometimes they're just assholes. Maybe sometimes, sometimes the people that are in your family are just, I don't really have big experience because I don't have, I've got a very small family, but are, are assholes, right? So that's this possibility you got to deal with these asshole siblings or so on and so forth. But yeah, you're right. I mean, this is part of, again, this is perhaps on the one hand, a disruption of a, of a family model that has, you know, strict patriarchal kind of power at its root. But in that disruptive disruption, we're also looking at kind of that further retreat into yourself or that selectivity over relationships, right? This is this, perhaps it's the modern, you know, the family version of the block. Okay. How about uh, we leave uh, that family aside for a second sure. um, and l l get back on track. Where do you want to take us um, after looking at uh, the etymology here? Right. So what was sort of the... The understanding there was that the word patrios links us back to the love of fathers, which means that the initial connection back to the state is expressed through some sort of order of patriarchy. And what I'd kind of like us to get into is I'd like to explore on the one hand how these things that might seem removed from each other, the potential latent sociopathic expression of the family and construction of the state as authoritarian projects, are actually historically quite connected. What, uh, what do you mean by historically connected? Historically and in contemporary society. So let's think about this together for a moment and think about what is the image of the patriarch? Uh, when you say that, what kind of comes to mind is, um, well, a male, first oh, of all. All right. Generally, uh, probably white male. Uh, white. Um, not middle-aged, like, uh, but, you know... Actually, it doesn't really matter what age. Um, strong. So someone who's physically adapt, like adept, um, smart, right. uh, conventionally smart, um, but also just on the brink of kind of breaking. Mm. You know, someone who just pushed a little bit either way uh, could either be very aggressive um, or fall apart crying. I don't know. That's kind of the image that I have. So there's a, right, so I think that there's, yeah, I'd agree with you on a lot of those points. I think that there's an image of the patriarch as powerful, right? This is, and these, uh, it's an invulnerability as well. And this is yeah, yeah. kind of classic expression is, again, perhaps stoicism, right? Yeah. Being aloof to emotions, being kind of distant and unconnected. Uh, again, you're right, uh, self-reliant, right? These are all these interesting attributes in the sense that yeah. on the one hand they have the appearance or guise of being somewhat kind of positive on the other hand too we also realize that they're could be heavily destructive yeah yeah right and so i guess the point here about this linkage is that on the one hand when we think about sort of a patriarchal figure in a family for freud this is where we kind of get back to freud freud identified something quite interesting is that this okay and we should probably preface this with a lot of things there's a lot of things that freud got very very wrong yeah probably, he was a very, yeah. very curious guy in yeah. a lot of ways um he was quite prolific as well very prolific quite witty i don't know if you ever kind of heard this anecdote but i guess obviously he'd 
by the time he was sort of like a, I think in the late 80s, he'd sort of aroused the attentions of the SS, right? Yeah, yeah. And they came to his house and they like, they took all of his books and robbed his vault and they spent like thousands of dollars from him, right? They confiscated it because he was Jewish. And as right, when, they, yeah. when they leave, he says, that's the, that's, that's the most I ever got or that's far more than I ever got for a house call. <laughs> you know, the other thing too is basically he noticed that yeah they you know word got to him Freud unfortunately they're they're burning your you're burning your books in Berlin right he says well you know a thousand years ago they would have burnt me so I guess we're making progress <laughs> right so yeah he was very witty he's quite a funny yeah. guy in a lot but of respects again that kind of shows like a stoic uh, sort of Perhaps. philosophy right right and so the one thing that the Freudian circle did and they wrote about it at length was that there was this connection for them between societies uh, that had patriarchs, uh, patriarchal power, and connections to the state. And for them, this is actually one thing that the Freudians did that was quite interesting, is that they wanted, so they continued to draw reference to and critique the parental figure. And probably the one of the most interesting essays that they do this, that Freud does this in, is in Civilization is Discondensed. And it's actually the very beginning. He writes this long little essay on the what he refers to as the oceanic feeling. Right, yeah. And on the one level, what he's talking about is he's talking about what people feel or what he assumes they feel when they have a religious experience or connection. But what's critical about that essay and quite interesting, he says that it's not ultimately what's at root there is a feeling of wholeness, a feeling of security, a feeling of connection that's rooted back in parental figures. Interesting. And his concern, and the concern of the Freudians in general, the Freudians, the Freudians, the Freudians, yeah, yeah whatever, um, was that this same parental kind of figure, the supernatural protector, was actually a very usable figure for uh, mass politics. Oh, usable for politics in what kind of what way? It was a deployable figure. It was one that essentially, if people were socialized in their families to look up to, idolize, and think about these parental figures, predominantly the patriarch, as someone who is supernatural, someone who is strong, someone who is not, someone they could cry to, someone they could talk to, but it was sort of a one-way connection, right, that... Ultimately, this is sort of a loose, ruthless, calculating figure. And we've spoken about these type of figures before. Yeah. Right? If people had that socialization in their family life, they might also find themselves turn to that type of figure in a moment of crisis. So, um, so they never... So, basically, Freud had written about and thought about the possibility of Hitler before yeah, Hitler yeah, took power. Right, yeah. And the other kind of thing that I was thinking of is the linkage between, um, you know, the state on one hand, the patriarchy on another, and then how Freud actually gets picked up uh, quite predominantly in things like marketing. Yes. Um, so that kind of subconscious uh, or, you know, that layer of messages that are sent through marketing to instill a feeling. Um, I think maybe um, I'll talk about it soon, but I have an example. Um that kind of combines these these four elements. Um, but I think um, what I want to hear you talk about a little bit more is the, the relationship between the patriarch and the state. Right. So what, what kind of develops after Freud um, makes those claims? Right. So, and actually Freud gets taken up by the Frankfurt School as well on this regard. Um, 
Adorno writes an interesting, sorry, Max Adorno uh, writes an interesting book called The Authoritarian Type, or I think The Authoritarian Personality. Um, and essentially it's, it's the same idea that in moments of crisis, uh, in moments of uncertainty, people do try to find this sort of supernatural character. And so for the Freudian circle writing in the late 20s and early 30s, right, when they started to really develop these theories, obviously it was, it was fascism and it was the rise of the Third Reich. And this is, no, so it's not really, it's not remarkable that the Reich takes on the mantle of the fatherland, right? Because ultimately the, the whole sort of persona of Hitler was this expression of this gentle, benign, right, yeah. but ultimately powerful, all-powerful yeah. father figure. And then you think, too, back to the sort of the Greek roots, you know, love of our fathers. So this is this actual sort of infatuation that, dependent upon modes of socialization, that the patriarch, patriarchal power becomes, on the one hand, expressed in families, and it becomes sort of, it can be a very violent expression within families, but it also becomes the violent expression within states. And in both cases, and this is the interesting thing about the Reich, <laughs> both in terms of a family structure, but also in a state structure, one of the you know, key components of that patriarchal figure was control over the reproductive rights and bodies of women. Yeah, and I think that's one of the first kind of things that happens, right? It's uh, definitely, it's, it gets expressed on the one hand that that reproductive power gets appropriated through a project of eugenics, obviously, right, which yeah. is ultimately a claim to reproduction. But the other part of it, too, is that I believe it gets mandated that you need to have a certain number of children for the fatherland. In fact, it's as many children as you possibly can, which, of course, is also, which makes like abortion becomes, I think, well, I think it was obviously not legal. Uh, and it becomes, unless, of course, you, the eugenic project steps in, right? right but yeah. for the most part, the idea was that if you were Aryan-born, you should be having as many children as possible, and you need to be, and again, there was actually a very strong push to have women in the domestic sphere. Yeah, and we see something very similar happening in um, Upper Canada, Lower Canada, the development of the Canadas um, in colonial, you know, in our neck of the woods anyway, in colonial developments, uh, particularly around Aboriginal peoples or Indigenous peoples, and the infiltration or the, you know, the kind of mass um, covering of the the territory by settlers. Right where the, you know, the home state and the home office was really pushing settlers to have kids, uh, yeah. to outnumber as much as possible the indigenous uh, folks. Yeah. So, I mean, this is part of this sort of expression, particular powers to use, basically use women's reproductive rights to control those, control those powers for their own sort of ends of perpetuity. But I guess, and so the interesting thing for the Freudians and what they were anxious about was that this figure doesn't really become viable as a sort of political character, right? It doesn't mean that institutions can't be patriarchal at all, but in terms of this appeal, this need to have a leader that embodies this sort of paternalistic and patriarchal kind of power, it seems to be heightened in moments of crisis. And that crisis is expressed in a lot of ways. It's expressed in terms of, especially in the case of the Reich, it was expressed in terms of economic insecurity, obviously. Weimar yeah, was a disaster, yeah. inflation goes through the roof, right? feel they got a bad deal out of the First World War. Yeah. But the other element too, and I think this is what's very important and why this sort of bridges us to the contemporary moment, is that I don't know how versed you are in kind of the Reich and its history, but one strong element was this recall for a bucolic kind of past, right? It was an agrarian yeah. society. It was in many respects 
trying to turn back industrial power yeah. and return to what were coordinates, social and economic and cultural coordinates that people understood and felt comfortable with. And so in this respect too, there's, there's something about, and I, I would claim, and I could be quite wrong, but I claim that there's some sort of relationship between the proliferation of nostalgia and patriarchal power. Yeah. Yeah, I think you would be right about that. And it gets, it's been expressed quite interesting. So, I mean, what were some of the mantras? So, of course, when we think about a patriarchal figure, and this is, I think this is one of the funny things about our, the anxiety and the, on our current moment is that in many respects, Trump is, Trump is a perfect patriarch, right? He has, you know, numerous children. He wants to express himself, dress himself, sort of put himself forward as someone who's powerful, who's in control. Now, if he succeeds or not, that's a different question. Uh, but he clearly doesn't. Yeah. But but in terms of his persona, in terms of how he wants to present himself, it's as a patriarch, right? Like yeah. it's, he's yeah. powerful. He's smart. He only makes the best deals, right? Right. Yeah. Um, he basically has, you know, he continues to express his views on his own sort of relationship with his wife, right? He's obviously, yeah. you know, outside that was able to make some pretty like egregious claims towards how to treat other people's well, what treat women's bodies, yeah, right? Which he got called out for, but nonetheless seemed to be elected. <laughs> yeah. If that whole ordeal, uh, I don't know what happened there. I, yeah. So here you have this, this figure, right? Who, I mean, embodies, I think that really actually embodies what the Freudians are trying to write about again, right? right? The redux. And obviously, uh, you can make the claim that history, you know, repeats itself versus tragedy and then it's farce. And there is a certain element of that, that, you know, Trump is the farcical sure, return sure. of the, you know, 1930s authoritarian character. But of course, things are never matched up perfectly, right? There's never perfect historical parallels. There's, there's always no, a new no. moment. Yeah. But one thing that does seem to be in the mix again is nostalgia. So what was Trump kind of claiming? Well, Trump was going to turn back the clock. Right? Yeah, to a simpler life, so a simpler time. Yeah, Literally that America was going to be great again. Yeah. That, you know, again, this sort the, of... The great again. Great right? again. And it's a pastime that could be right. resurrected. And curiously, it makes its same appearance with Brexit. Yep. Brexit again was a, was a largely a campaign upon nostalgia. And people aren't quite sure what it is that they yearned for. But whatever it was, it was in the past and that this figure can bring it back, right? And so it's this other sort of form of security. But this, I think, is this kind of really crucial key point is that because for Freud of the sort of the linkage back to the family, that you have the creation of associations of security, comfort, and protection with a patriarchal figure, parent, then you have a similar sort of expression of this form of power in an authoritarian leader. Right. So what embodies that um, is kind of a return to the past that is felt or constructed to be safe, secure, predictable, uh, perhaps less risky, these sorts of things. Well, what's he actually, what in both those cases in Brexit and with Trump, he's appealing to people's childhoods. Right. 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 And so that's, that's this interesting connection. Um, now, so with this, and I think this is kind of the other direction to go in is that we've seen a lot of really interesting critiques, a lot of interesting kind of manifestations of this patriarchal anxiety. And I think I'd like to sort of express them in three ways, or there's three sort of examples. Okay. What's the first? So the first example, uh, I'd like to make a claim that there is a cultural expression uh, that is reactionary, ultimately. It's 
it's a reaction. It's, it's, it's an anxiety that the patriarch is attacked. It's an anxiety that the patriarch is going away. And obviously it doesn't get expressed directly like that, but it gets expressed in terms of who the protagonist is and the challenges that they face. And there's, okay. there's actually two versions of this that I think expresses quite well. Um, but let's kind of give sort of a, a codex of what this kind of looks like. What it generally looks like is it looks like a lone male figure, white invariably, who is alone with young children. Okay. Who is navigating a dangerous world. It is a world where social order has broken down. Uh, and the other kind of in, kind of interesting ingredient or dimension to it is that people who... People... The characters who under previous form of patriarchal power would have been the patriarch's helpers or basically those who would be submissive to him have fled. Okay. Uh, I'm thinking of a few movies and TV shows that fit kind of exactly the description that you're talking about. Is that where you want to take that? Well, I think so. One that I like that's expressed as, a, as both a book and a movie is The Road. Okay. And so The Roy, Road by McCormack... Um, is essentially a it's a dystopian it's marketed as a dystopian story it's the idea that a post-apocalyptic america has been bombed or something and we're never quite sure what happens i'm pretty sure it's a nuclear attack though that causes shit has gone shit has gone down yeah it's gone it's it went badly right and so you have this figure basically with you've got a family of three you've got a, a wife and a husband and a son and the story is quite simply a story of basically this guy his father trying to guide his son to safety in the South, right? Okay. Because they think there's more food in the South, that it's a safer place to go. But the start of that story, where it begins, is his wife committing suicide. Oh. And so the theme there, again, is this idea that ultimately women have left, right? They're abandoning the patriarch. They're abandoning the family, right? It's actually it's a very conservative message that essentially... In the absence of that, then it come, falls down to this sort of lone individual to take care of the young, to basically secure the con- continuity of the family, continuity of basically themselves, right? That's the right. knowledge of bloodlines. Right. And so they do, they do so by violence, right? And so largely it's a violent action. And you basically need to basically engage in your own sort of sociopathic behavior at the family level to secure your existence. And it's, um, it's a great book. That's a great movie. It's very entertaining. But ultimately, that theme is quite compelling because, again, there's this whole other sort of side reality that's kind of connected to it. On the one hand, the novel reads, and I've heard other people say this, is kind of a grandfather reflecting on an uncertain future. Right, yeah. Right, yeah, it's yeah, fear yeah, of yeah. what's to come. And because, obviously, it's not, it's not really the fear of the nuclear bomb. It's far more about the fear of disorder and a disordered family, right, disordered power disruption basically a fear of the unknown and the unknown future in particular so then the other kind of theme that comes up with this or is kind of related to this kind of theme sorry that's a bit redundant um is actually the walking dead and so i'm gonna say a few things i like that show a lot i'm also a reader of the comic books okay i think differ a bit right they do differ a bit they've connected on some key points but I also think it's kind of, I, you know, I'm not going to box to say that, that the, in the comic books especially, and it gets watered down, I think, in the TV show, but there's actually some kind of misogynistic themes within Robert Kirkman's kind of vision. Kind of? 
Very. Okay. And it's, um, it ranges on a whole number of points uh, to basically female incompetence, uh, inability to make tough choices. But the most, I think, profound and important example of this is that really the first few comics and the first few seasons actually follow an arc of Rick being abandoned. Right. Right. And that, and that wasn't the case in the TV show, right? Well, it's, it's similar in the TV show in both cases, both the comic book and the TV show. Um, ultimately his wife, Lori engages in infidelity, right? Um, as a spoiler in the comic book, both Lori and the child die, the baby, Oh, they both get killed, uh, for a number of reasons. You don't, put that into a tv show right but the theme is kind of again very similar that you have a lone for a while at least a lone white character shepherding their son yeah after their wife has kind of again in a a thematic way abandoned them first abandoning them by leaving them in the hospital to die right unconscious yeah then abandoning them by being engaging in infidelity with their best friend and ultimately they pay the price of dying in childbirth Right in the TV show, it's kind of really what the actual conservative message is again about that. And we sort of have the understanding that Lori had her reasons to do what she did, but she even herself sort of makes her own claim to herself that she feels like she's a bad wife. Right. So we're supposed to feel bad for the husband here. I think what we're supposed to feel is that it's, again, the message is ultimately that you have a lone white male shepherding young life and again needs to engage in violence and sociopathic behavior for the most part to keep them alive in this wasteland. And so that is a theme that comes up in a number of different forms. It's in many respects, that theme of infidelity and its relationship to patriarchal power is a very old one. Very, very old, right? Probably some of the first kind of iterations of this is actually the, the myth of the minotaur. So everybody knows Theseus, right? Theseus basically has to navigate his way through the labyrinth. That's a common kind of, idiom we make reference to, but the actual story behind it is kind of compelling. Um, Basically, it starts with King Minos. He engages in sort of this hubris because everything kind of goes his way. And to punish Minos, um, his wife ends up having sex with a bull, right? Okay. She gets enchanted. She basically finds herself so enchanted by this bull. And the bull, I think, I'm pretty sure is actually, in some versions, is Poseidon. In other versions, it's Zeus, right? Oh, it's basically incarnated as, as this male bull. And so she gives birth to a minotaur. Mm-hmm. And uh, King Minos is so compelled to, you know, he doesn't, even though the minotaur is a monster, it's part of his bloodline. So he builds a labyrinth to contain it and puts it in there. But in some respects, his need to keep the Minotaur actually increases and his desire to have the Minotaur increases after his son, his firstborn son, his only other son is killed. So again, Uh, the situation of despair. Despair. And again, infidelity, right? In terms of how this bloodline gets perverted. But ultimately his son, who's named Androgynous, which is interesting in itself, is killed Uh, in the Battle of Marathon. And as a result, to preserve his bloodline, he basically needs to feed this minotaur, right? The minotaur has this constant hunger for human flesh, and so he continues to take tributes from Athens, right? Ultimately, the end of the minotaur comes at the hand of Theseus, but the reason why Theseus actually is able to do it is that um, he's assisted by Minos' daughter, Adriana, who basically helps end 
the curse of the Minotaur elves and this bloodline by giving him, I think, the, she gives him the ability to navigate through the labyrinth and he promises to marry her. Okay. So there's kind of a the theme there that ultimately the bloodline again is both perverted by women and then it's undone by his female child and he loses right, his right. only son and heir who happens to be a man eating monster. Right. So okay. I, ultimately this is this kind of long standing anxiety, right? About the protection of patriarchal lines and also, but truly too, the expression of the limits to preserve patriarchal power to the point that you build a labyrinth to keep a creature inside and you basically demand tribute of Athens like every seven years to send, I think, both men and women over to be eaten by this creature. Yeah, I mean, I think you took it to the extreme on that one. Like that, that like I, I, you know, that's, that's quite extreme, but uh, I want to... Um, the other probably important point to mention too is that um, it ends on multiple lines so I don't know if you know that other part of the crucial twist of the story is that Theseus when he comes back to Athens says that he'll get the sailors to raise a black flag huh. if he's alive or if, sorry, if he's dead and white ones if he's alive and so, so as to signal signal that he came back to his father right. who's watching and he forgets he forgets that he made this arrangement, so Oops. his father sees the black flags and throws himself over the side of the building. Oh. Also on the side, on the way back, he basically just totally abandons Minos' daughter. He said he'd marry her and leaves her on an island instead. So she gets nothing as well, despite betraying her father. Right? That's again kind of the other theme. Right. So, I, I mean, it does follow the arc of a classic Greek tragedy, but I think, um, you know, the moves that are required to get there pick up on that anxiety around uh, the patrios and the, and the collapse of the patrios. Collapse of a state. Right. Right. That's ultimately what happens is Minos collapses. Um, let's, um, let's go on with your other examples. Right. So that was the, that was the example of um, what we'd probably would look at as the reactionary form of anxiety, right? That this patriarchal figure is under attack and this is, when the patriarch is under attack, it leads to a disordered, chaotic world, right? And states end and structures collapse right through post-apocalyptic scenarios. Right, yeah. Pretty extreme. And I think your next example is literally a post-apocalyptic right. kind this of is, scenario. This is sort of a different take on this. And this is, um, but this is the other thing that we see. And I think it's a very important critique and it's an interesting critique. It's I, Ultimately, I don't think it goes to the root in the same way that our, our third example does, but it's still an interesting one. And that's basically to reveal the fragility of this figure, right? And there's a lot of ep lots of different kind of mediums that have started to point this out, and it's an important message, but it does this in two ways. So a good, a good, ep a good example of this is actually Mad Max, The Road to Fury, right? And I think some people who love the Mad Max series had problems with this one because they felt that he was overshadowed by, you know, Imperia Furiosa and right, all the yeah. other kind of kind of lame sort of reactions to the movie, but what the movie did really well was actually picked up on kind of two two dimensions of patriarchy that I think are very important. So if you'll recall, if you've seen the film, um, one of the sort of the big forces involved is are the war pups or the or the war kids, right? And basically, yeah, those are kind of those. Uh, they're, they're, they're skinheads. They're skinheads, and they're all pale, they're basically all pale. dying. They're basically all terminal, right? Like some of them have the main the character who gets introduces us to this kind of life, right? Yeah, is dying from cancer. He's got two tumors on his neck or whatever. But the interesting thing about them is that they're all in awe of basically the warlord 
right? Right. Who, who is the the patriarch? Who is, is you know great lengths gone have gone been gone to construct him as a patriarch? We're introduced to that fact at the very beginning. Yeah. This is part of this point that I think is quite important because on the one hand we have this sort of cultural reaction. I think a lot of people are right in pointing out that there seems to be a resurgence around patriarchy, right? In a number of different ways. It could be sort of the men's rights group thing that's kind of yeah, taken off. Yeah. It can be people who talk about taking the red pill and going their own way, right? Which is like men going their own way movement or something. Okay. I've heard of that one. Very misogynistic kind of undertones in these sort of projects. And what's interesting about this example is that ultimately you have hundreds or thousands of these skinhead kids who are dying, who are not at all served by the warlord in any real no, way. No, like forgotten. There's a scene where they're supposed to get water and they just get a few drops instead of enough to yeah. drink, right? And they're disposable, right? They're basically yeah, sent yeah. into battle and killed and they're just, just disposable mass. And yet each one of them is in awe to the patriarch. Yeah. They look up to the patriarch. They want to be the patriarch. And I think that's, that's a very uncomfortable message, but it's a very important message that I think today... And I think today especially, and this is sort of these interesting kind of cultural conditions, is that we've talked earlier about millennials and survivalism. Yeah, yeah. And part of this element of survivalism is a feeling of insecurity, right? It's a feeling of fear of the unknown. Yes, absolutely. Um, it is also increasingly an element of disruption or uncertainty of one's personal relationships, Right, that one can be socially insecure. One's not sure whether we have strong social networks. In fact, there's efforts made to ensure that we build strong social networks. Right? Yeah, and they're constantly being questioned. And there's a number of ways in which this these sort of pressures can exert themselves. But I've, to go back to my friend Chris, who'd mentioned that perhaps part of the survivalism is a return to the home Homeric myth, is I think this is actually a really good point. Is that when we think about the vision of the patriarch as somebody who is strong someone who is capable, smart, cunning, and also I think most importantly, and this is a this is a point of pressure I think for a lot of people, is that the part of the value of being a patriarch is that you're invulnerable to your own emotions. Right. Which means yeah. you're invulnerable to others. Right? Others can't hurt you. Right. And so or the construction of the patriarch. This is just it, right? And we'll get into that point in, on the last on the last example. But this construction of patriarchy and this understanding of it is actually probably incredibly appealing at the moment for a number of young men. And that's, that is an interesting, that's an interesting point made by this film is that ultimately that's a doomed project, right? Yeah. You'll be used, you'll be disposed yeah. of, but nonetheless, each and every one of them wants to set themselves up as the patriarch because of these ascribed values that they have. And that's... Um, there's kind of that interesting linkage where Foucault basically says there's a fascist in all of us. Right. And I think, and, and yeah, I think like it's a little scary to think of that in that, in that way. Right. That's incredibly scary. Right. It's an, it's a, but it's, a, I think it's an insight we need to grapple with because, and we do in varieties of ways, we talk about toxic masculinity, right. That's a, that's an important yep, discourse, yep. but sometimes I'm not, not sure if we're always ready to go to the root as to why someone would want to be a patriarch. Why they oh, that's might, an interesting question. Why they might pursue it. Why they think there's something in it. And I think that Mad Max actually does, you know, it's, it's obviously a pop cultural film, but it does an important, it portrays a very important message in saying that despite the appeal, that will probably just get you killed or starved or you're going to die. Right, so yeah. It's a terminal, it's a terminal longing. Right? It, you know, in a, it's a, it's an obscure movie, 
Um, it's not for everyone, but I think it has a very poignant message with the audience in which it's sought to appeal to. Yeah, probably. And so then the other, the flip side of this, uh, of the film, the other sort of the other main character we mentioned is this warlord, right? Who's the extreme patriarch and quite, you know, we said it's constructed to make sure that it's very obviously the patriarchal. He literally has a whole series of wives. He tries to control his offspring to make sure that he's able to keep them under control. He also, for some reason, controls all the water, but he also controls a large amount of breast milk that he seems to pump. Well, this is the thing. It's a post-apocalyptic movie, right? So there's certain elements of it that I think you need to just Except. kind of chalk up to the genre. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the whole milk thing, I didn't quite understand it. I think it was just that the construction of the patriarch, Again, him being able to reprodu- control reproduction, reproduction. Yeah. being able to control women's bodies, but also to show um, of in a time where there isn't uh, a lot uh, of you know produce can't grow yeah. anything that kind of stuff the thing that he can produce is breast milk right <laughs> which you know is obscure and fucked up in its own way but you know it, it's it fits with the genre it of fits movie, the genre and that would be an entire other episode on a critique yeah. of that genre but but anyways the most important point and given to us about this patriarchal figure though is right at the opening of the film. And they give us a sh- close-up shot of this of this guy sitting up here, and he's old, right? Like, he's very old. Like, really old. He's wrinkled. His body is lecherous. Like, he's got tumors and yeah. sores and cankers. Basically can't breathe by himself. He, he is also on a full respirator, right? Like, his, yeah, his lungs are failing. And that scene is him getting armor put on yeah. him that yeah. conceals all of those blemishes on all of those blights, right? And so the idea there is... There's a couple of levels. There's a level that ultimately this patriarchal figure that c- controls all this command is incredibly fragile. Yeah. If not dying. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I, and I mean, I think um, to, to push that analysis a little bit more, the the movie takes uh, occurs at a point of time in which the patriarch is failing, the state or the enterprise that that patriarch built is failing. Um, and it kind of is like a, a snapshot as to what could happen if an um, you know an attempt to kill the patriarch or an attempt to overthrow the rule was timed right, mm. um, because the movie kind of sets it up that you know that she had attempted to flee previously but always failed, but this time it's going to work. Yeah. Um, and there's a particular reason why it works this time, and I'm not going to get into it, but, but yeah. yeah. No, that's a really good point, and that may be too much of a spoiler for the movie, or may, I don't know if that's... But anyways, We don't really care about spoilers. No, we don't really care about no, spoilers. We'll leave that. But So that's I think that's a really important cultural critique. It sees patriarch as, as, as fragile. However, I actually think, and this is our last sort of direction on this, that the best critique on this actually comes from Mad Men. Okay. And the reason for this is that, well, we've, we've mentioned this a couple of times, that... Um, this construction of patriarchy, right? Because, I mean, it's quite important to suggest from the outset that this sort of ultimately Homeric kind of figure who has all this autonomy, who has all this power, or is sort of aloof to their own emotions or in control of them completely, so on and so forth, is a myth, right? They don't exist. It's a construction. But there are real uh, repercussions of the myth and well, that's that, not well, yeah, that's like definitely you know that's not what we're talking about we're saying the ability to become this figure is an impossible one because they've never actually right. existed right but that's not 
you know, that's not to say that patriarchal violence doesn't exist. Exactly. It's not to say yeah. that there's examples of reproductive rights being claimed in yeah. sort of a patriarchal. I mean, we're, we're just kind of two white dudes talking about this, right? Um, yeah. So just want to make that really clear. It's <laughs> it, not a myth. When we talk about the construction, uh, it's, you know, one thing. Versus the actual Versus the actual power, stuff yeah, that actually, that's... you know, material and, you know, economic, physical violence, that kind of stuff that occurs. Anyway, sorry, no, really sorry good, to interject. Really so, no, that's important, important clarification. Um, and we had talked about the clarification before. So. so the final example, though, is kind of is perhaps Mad Men. And the reason that I, I actually quite like Mad Men on this front is that it, the point is to show this is that this points holes to the fact that this figure itself is largely this construction, right? That in actual roles... People actually trying to live out these roles crumble and fail. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people have critiqued Mad Men um, because they, I think there is a possibility that it could be interpreted as romanticizing a sexist past. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I, I think that was one critique that's that was one, love about it. Yeah. Um, or also it immunes us to sexism today, right? We look back yep, at the uh, back at it and say, oh, look how bad it was then. Like we're not there now. Right. Which is like, I think those are, I think those are valid points. But what I do think that the show does in a very cunning way is sets up these characters that ultimately show us this construction of patriarchy has these mythical kind of dimensions that aren't true, right? And this actually goes, and why I like this is because this actually maybe links back to Freud's point. Right, yeah. Is that ultimately part of our desire for patriarchal authority or sort of the way that patriarchal authority gets invoked and set up is that it's based upon this initial childhood belief in the supernatural power of a parent, right? And their supernatural abilities. And so the character, you know, Don Draper, well, we gradually learned, sorry, this is lots of spoilers. So if you haven't seen Mad Men at this point, like, I don't know what you're doing with your time, but it's too late. I'm going to spoil it. Um, uh, yeah. You know what? We don't give a shit about spoilers. Just spoil it. So um, we've gradually learned that this character, Don Draper, and Don Draper is basically it's a perfect patriarch in terms of these constructions, yeah, right? Like yeah. he, and the show actually makes reference to him. Like basically, uh, at one point, uh, Don's wife Betty, her friend, basically looks at him while he's building Sally's house for her birthday in the backyard. She got like a playhouse and says, you know, that's that's a perfect man. Or that's perfect a real man, man yeah. right? Yeah. And the casting of Don, of uh, sorry, of John Hamm on this is actually quite. It's quite Probably well done. intentional. Yeah. Well, it's incredibly intentional, right? Like basically this is someone who is very good looking, has sort of that rugged feature that you sort of associate with sort of this patriarchal figure. The actual writing for the character, he is very witty, dry, self-reliant to a certain degree, right? Um, but also aloof, right? right yeah. Terribly aloof yeah. and detached. Yeah. And we ultimately learn as the show progresses that Don Draper doesn't exist, Right, yeah. But he's actually... That's the big reveal. Yeah. It's a, it's a sham old he's actually, thing. He's Dick Whitman, right? Yeah. And he's this other character. And so there's a, on the one hand, that's actually quite a... There's a potential cultural critique there too because Don Draper is supposed to be the character who kind of raises himself up from his bootstraps and becomes a successful millionaire. Right? Yeah. This is the other part of the patriarchal powers that he's rich. He is rich. And of course, we, we do learn that actually this didn't happen. It was only possible through identity theft. Yeah. Right? So yeah. this is in itself sort of an invalidation of that uh, classic, classic American narrative of working hard and, and achieving these things. But the other thing that we start to discover is that to play out this role of the patriarch, he has to invent this other life. 
is to yeah. invent this other character. And over time, that character erodes and whittles and falls apart because the playing of the sort of supernatural figure, and this is the other element, is that his sort of presence and his agency is sort of larger than life. But as the show progresses, his drinking catches up with him, his womanizing catches up yep. with him. Yep. And ultimately, we realize that, like, there is something fundamentally wrong with this figure. Yep. And he starts to crumble at the seams. He falls slowly apart. falls apart. Falls apart. And we kind of get this realization that this person who is cast as a real man, the person who is cast as like the perfect man and perfect patriarch actually doesn't really exist. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's an ideal, it's an ideal that can't possibly be pursued. It's the other point. And if it is pursued, it's pursued as folly. Right. And there's a kind of a double move that happens with another character. In yes, this is uh, Roger Sterling. So this is another kind of nice way that this show, I think, actually carries out this interesting critique is that at one point, Roger Sterling's daughter, uh, so Roger Sterling is, works with Don and works with Don Draper, uh, the agency partner in it, and so, so, so forth. His daughter joins a commune. She's like in her early 20s or something, and she runs off to a commune. And basically, like Roger's relationship with his daughter has always been strained. Right. It hasn't been very good. He's basically kind of been absent. And when he's not absent, he sort of lavishes her with gifts and then disappears again. And ultimately, she's at a commune. And so uh, his wife, his now ex-wife, basically says, hey, look, like we got to sort this out. And so they're driving in the car and she basically says, look, you're her father. It's your responsibility to keep her safe. It's your responsibility to retrieve her, to you know protect her self-interest. Sure, sorry, protect her well-being. And yeah. so he goes to the car. Go con. get her. Yeah, go get her. Go get her back. Bring her back. Right, return her to the family home. It's a very patriarchal kind of mission in terms of claiming one's children, bringing it, them back. Uh, it almost seems like it could be a uh, Greek tragedy. It probably could be, and so it, and it has to be him, right? It's not. He's not accompanied by his wife. Yeah, so uh, go, not, go get her back. Yeah, he's not accompanied by his wife. He has to go do it himself. And so first, he tries to kind of reason with her. He tries to reason with the commune, commune people, and bring her back. And ultimately, what he resorts to is he resorts to physical force. Right? She won't come, and so he ends up trying to physically grab her bring her in the car home and in the course of grabbing her and carrying her to the car he slips and falls in mud right and so she struggles and he can't do it and he's face in the mud now he's face down in mud rather embarrassed and sort of the, the point again of course is that he's constructed he's ultimately sort of presented by his wife and constructed as his wife of having this particular role this particular power and again it doesn't actually exist and in I think, that context i think those two storylines arc well with the development of the female storylines in the show and we don't need to get into it but um the female characters uh, gaining more uh, autonomy more uh, respect uh, from the field that they're in and ultimately kind of you know overshadowing these supposed patriarchs well i think it's, it goes it should be mentioned that and i think in that same show in that same episode or the episode after you have this meeting between the the Peggy one? Don, okay, Peggy, yeah. and Peter. And they meet in a Burger Chef, which is our sort of, anyways, and they have this conversation about how to market Burger Chef. And Peggy actually takes the lead on this. And what she's sort of saying is that the actual way that family exists is dirty, it's complicated, it's sad, right? And it's messy. And then she contrasts that with Burger Chef. And she says that here we can construct a form of family, right? That... Uh, ultimately is clean. Sanitized. Sanitized yeah. and well lit. And the interesting thing about this is she's ultimately kind of lecturing to both these men on what family 
actually sort of is, what how it can actually be experienced, and also how family can be created. And the reference to clean, bright lit space is actually from a Hemingway story. And the connection here, of course, is that in Hemingway's story, the greatest fear that we face is when we realize that there is actually nothing. Right. right? Yeah. Nothing is yeah. actually our fear. And so this is sort of her kind of own claim about a family is that potentially without respect, without sort of mutual relationships, the family as it's constructed can mean nothing. Right, if one's forced into it, if one's forced into these roles. And so you have this very kind of interesting critique of that, of that exact kind of construction. Because, of course, on the other hand, if you construct patriarchs, you also construct myths of families and forms of families. And also, you know, without proper interrogation, those, those myths and those types of families become highly exclusionary. Um, I think with this last example, we've come almost full circle. Uh, we started the conversation about an anxiety that you had around being uh, a father or playing the role, the parental role of uh, a father probably wrapped up within there was a myth of needing or having to be some sort of patriarch. And I think the anxiety probably occurs for, you know, folks like us, which is we don't want to be the mythologized patriarch who, you know, is angry, who, is violent, who is all this, but we need to play a role. So what is that role? And where I kind of want to lead you to finish off is if we do in fact have a perceived or real breakdown of uh, the fatherland, um, that, that father figure, the patriarchal figure, and this is regardless of your gender expression, but that, you know, that stereotypical strong head of the family, um, you know, do we, so A, you know, is, is it something that is actually happening and B, where do we go from here or what do we make of it? Yeah. Those are both, uh, really good questions. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to go about kind of trying to answer them. And so I think with your first kind of question, is this actually happening? And the answer is yes. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, um, one thing that's happened that I think is interesting is that, you know, a long time ago, back in the eighties, Donna Haraway wrote that essay, right? The Cyborg Manifesto. Uh, do you remember? Uh, the Cyborg? Cyborg Manifesto. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah one that's thing that's she, like a classic social uh, science uh, text. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing she pointed out in that is that there's something about the new, and she was focusing on networks and, you know, basically what she's trying to anticipate is the rise of digital economy. She was talking about the leveling of sort of labor, right? And what she referred to is that every form of labor becomes feminized. And she didn't mean that, that, you know, women are doing all the work. She meant feminized in the sense that there's a form of labor pattern that was thought to belong to women at one point, which meant that it was precarious and discontinuous and that one went in and out of the labor market kind of at a whim, right? And that was kind of the expectation in the early sort of advent of industrial capitalism when women got involved. It was at least in different countries, but throughout the 19th century and early 20th centuries that women would be in the labor force for a while and then out of the labor force and sort of divided between home and work. And some of the issues are prescient about it was noticing that this has actually happened across the board. And what's interesting about that is this there's an expression here of an economic situation, right? There is an economic fact that the, the relationships of work that conferred sort of a particular patriarchal identity have been disrupted, right? So there's an, econ right, yeah, 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 so there's an yeah. economic reality that, yes, that, that's definitely happened. Um, and, of course, within that, and you can't, I mean, I lean towards Marxism, so I think I tend to understand that 
or believe at least that, you know, these working conditions, these relationships of production become kind of the conditioning relationships for other social and political expressions. So uh, that's the directionality I'd go. But ultimately, when you have that economic disruption, it's paired one way or another with a social disruption as well. And so we've seen that. And I think that, of course, that there is what there isn't to be said is that there isn't a balancing of power necessarily between men and women. There's still pay equities. Yeah, There's yeah. the fact too that gender roles and gender gender relationships are incredibly stubborn and sticky. So what tends to be the reality at this point is that yes, both women and men have a perhaps an increasingly similar relationship to the workforce in the sense that it's precarious, which means that you need both of them to work. But still, for the most part, women are responsible for chores, right? They yeah, do more chores. Domestic than men do. labor domestic. is. Uh, you know, highly feminized. Still remains highly feminized despite yeah. the fact that, you know, so now you've got these additional burdens that are carried on. So, I mean, you do have this disruption and in that disruption, it's very hard to imagine a this sort of 1950s patriarchal model surviving as, as it did, right? Um, which is a good thing. But as with any case of disruption, um, disruption produces uncertainty and it produces kind of this these questions about where do you go and there's obviously there's been plenty of sort of different radio casts or discussions about what does it mean to be a man today in terms of masculinity so on and so forth and i don't know if that's necessarily the most compelling question of what does it mean i think that's you know you can't really come up with an answer to that without being incredibly yeah. essentialist yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that but what there might be the case um is that there is with this a an opening of narratives, right? That all of us need narratives about where we go in life, about what it is we do and about who we are. And I think in the past, that narrative um, for women was actually, was incredibly suffocating, right? And for men, it was relatively uh, empowering and open. And I would say now that the, the, I don't think the narrative for women has uh, necessarily completely gotten better if anything has become far more complicated right so i think that one thing that is quite obviously expressed is that and i see this with you know i see this with my with my friends uh and i must see this with my wife to a certain extent is that if you go to work uh then you're critiqued for not being at home if you have kids Right, you're critiqued for not right. taking yeah. care of the house. Yeah. If you take care of the house and you stay, you make the choice to be a stay-at-home mother or something, then you're critiqued for not taking advantage yeah. of the workforce. Yep. Right, you get screwed either way. Yeah, basically, and I think that goes uh, probably both ways for both genders. Uh, what know, I, male, I, female, whatever. You, there seems to be an anxiety over what we do with our time and our bodies. Incredibly, and I, so I think that in many respects, so what's happened at the moment is that whereas. I'll make this claim is that I think that women have been far more active in challenging those narratives in trying to stretch them in trying to make them work and adapt them and trying to come up with these different possibilities. And I think for the most part on the other side of things for men, they haven't really done anything <laughs> like the thing's been totally disrupted. The idea of being the sort of male patriarchal breadwinner from the 1950s is basically a dead notion. There might be a few, cases where that still exists uh, and people might pers pursue that if they'd like. But the, the other half of this is that there's been very little ownership from us right, yeah. on what that might look like. What doesn't it look like? Right. Yeah. So that if there is, okay, so if that narrative has gone and that narrative should be gone. 
what's the new narrative? What's the new direction? And obviously, there's no one narrative that fits everybody, but there's still usually some sort of cultural generality that people kind of pursue. And this is generally we're not at the table no, on that discussion. No, no. And, uh, you know, what I find interesting is I always look um, for, you know, when I have questions like that, because it's one of these questions that you actually need to go out and observe. Uh, you know, it's not a theory. The answer isn't theoretical. Uh, we need to kind of observe in the real world what's going on. Um, and I always seem to return to what are the 14 to 21 year olds doing? Where are they? What are they doing? And I don't know where 14 to 21 year old men are. Well, and this is the, this is, I don't really know. This is an interesting angle and it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to address because it isn't really just 14 to 20. It's carried its kind of way through. Like there's been kind of, there's a number of young women who are professionally accomplished, who are highly educated and they're kind of increasingly being like, I can't find someone to date. Yeah. Because they're not there. Like, they're just not. Uh, I think they're playing video games in, in their the basement. basement. Yeah. And this is such an unfortunate kind of like cliche and stereotype to say, but it, it that, is, yeah. that is generally does seem to be a grain of truth or more than a grain in that description. And I think that's exactly, this is, I think, part of this problem is that part of the appeal to patriarchy right because we asked that question earlier why would yeah. someone try to pursue patriarchy right why would they think that that's something to be some sort of power to hold yeah, yeah. and part of it is maybe that there is just this vast insecurity in terms of yeah the narrative and as a result that becomes an appealing counter discussion that becomes an appealing way to carve out an identity even if it's a failed one um I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to something along the lines of a search for meaning. And I think if the myth of the patriarch exists, as you've detailed to us and shown us several examples, um, then it's something that one can kind of appeal to for meaning. Um, the implications of that meaning and that's, that quest ultimately are that it's a failed uh, pursuit. However... You know, the myth still exists. The myth is there. It can be something that can be appealed to. So my last question is if the myth of the patriarch as it stands is something uh, that is dwindling, something that it's lost its cultural place, what does that tell us for state formation? Understanding state formation as cultural revolution. How mm -hmm. do we go back to the construction of the state without that strong historical figure that was the patriarch or the fatherland in the case of the Reich and uh, Germany, like you, like you were talking about yeah. earlier. Again, so, so going back to kind of that Corrigan and Sayer kind of direction on yeah, construction yeah. of states or state projects. Um, you know, there are so many possibilities within that kind of question. There's, and I don't, the obvious, I think the obvious kind of point is that perhaps it, most important is that, you know, we're social creatures. And so we don't make meaning by ourselves, right? Which means we don't make narratives by ourselves. And so part of this other, part of this reality is that there's, there's a reluctance, I think, today amongst a lot of men to actually get emotionally involved with other people, 
right? Be it other other men, but also with women, right? And I think that ultimately, to part of that ability to kind of construct meaning and construct a different sort of state revolves around advancing reciprocacy, revolves around sort of enhancing democratic possibilities between people. I don't, I don't mean this purely gendered, I simply mean just between people. And so that might be one way to think about this. I also kind of wonder if part of the way that cultural revolution kind of plays out is maybe there's a technological story as well, right? The technologies always kind of revolutionize means and they change things. And so I kind of wonder if there's the possibility for us to move. Maybe this is part of the, part of the thing is that it's impossible these days to have these grand narratives. It's impossible to have, I think, narratives that are big and, you know, all encompassing and in that sense, national. I think in some respects, it's actually, we're at a very interesting moment in that, that sort of national project that you saw in the 1930s uh, is is an impossible one to mobilize. You won't have something like that again. Instead, as people have pointed out, it's far more that you have seduction and control based upon pleasure, far more than sort of national ideology. But maybe that also means too that in kind of the new for state state projects or state constructions, we need to start to think about our local relationships. And it might be far more possible to kind of create state projects at local levels between individuals that you can no longer maintain at a large level. It might be uh, a lot to do with thinking too about ultimately, I think, sorry, determining these relationships in terms of states, determining the fates around narratives of any kind, life narratives, with be they masculinity, be they femininity, be like non-identification of either, right? Um, is actually going to come down to how we handle leisure. That's probably actually the most pressing question for the 21st century is if we end up with leisure and if we do end up with mass amounts of leisure, how we handle it and whether we equip people to pursue things creatively. Because this is the other element is that you have basically people who feel lost and adrift and they're searching for this power, they're searching for autonomy and they're searching for it in all the wrong ways. Right, searching for it in terms of control over others and violence rather than perhaps trying to get people to engage in far more collaborative and artistic projects. Right. Uh, I'm going to have to stop you yeah, because um, the discussion around leisure is already on our board for future podcasts, which means that you've just signed up for it. So we're going to have you back to talk about 21st century leisure. And you heard it here first from Aaron Henry. It is the question of the 21st century. What do we do with our leisure from, um, looking at a failed essay, uh, Aaron has constructed a narrative around the fatherland through, uh, states through the pursuit of patriarchal power, looked at examples from, Greek myths connected it to Mad Men, Mad Max, Walking Dead, The Road, perceived breakdown of patriotism. Uh, sorry, well, well, maybe patriotism. That was a slip of the tongue, but Freud. No, you know, Freud uh, kind of carried us through to this. This is the ultimate. I think the recognition for Canada at one fifty is that patriotism is something we should probably abandon. Its origins mean love of one's fathers. Well, this episode is going to be released on the week of Canada's one fifty, uh, a couple days before it. So, you know, maybe uh, to our fellow Canadians, uh, we'd love to hear what you thought of uh, <laughs> the demise of uh, the, 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 the patriarch and the fatherland, uh, speaking of confederation fathers, but uh, comments. 
and I'll tell you how to get how, how to send those to us right now. But before I do, thank you, Aaron. Highly entertaining, highly informative. Again, for your third uh, installment. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing the fourth. You can take a bit of credit for it. You know, you put a lot of work into or putting these together. They're you know an hour and a bit long. Okay. Uh, really, you know, well researched. Aaron, again, I, I've said it. I think you know three times on this podcast, but probably one of the smartest people I know, if not the smartest person I know. I don't feel bad, but anyways. No, you don't have to feel bad. Uh, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or considerations for us or for Aaron, you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com where you'll find the history, uh, all the past episodes, as well as an additions and corrections page. We have a Facebook page that uh, currently Matt, uh, the regular co-host, is manning quite uh, dutifully, and that is at thesimpod, all one word. We are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher, we are on Google Play. Please leave us uh, some ratings and some reviews. It really helps the show. And again, I want to say thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And we're going to be back after a short break with some uh, recommendations. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Phil, joined by Aaron. Uh, we have some recommendations for you, as we always do. Uh, let's kick it off. Uh, Aaron, what do you have for us uh, this this go-around? Sure, so uh, I guess what I'm going to recommend on this episode uh, is a good seasonal read, right? So we're kind of, we've just stepped out of spring. It's just kind of early summer. Uh, yeah, in our neck of the woods, it's it's starting to get warm. Still, still quite wet. So cool. raining a lot, but yeah. uh, summer summer's around. Yeah. So there's certain books that fit better with that than others. Okay. So you don't yeah. really want to read like War and Peace in the middle of like an Ottawa summer. No, you don't. It doesn't quite jive, and it's heavy to lug around. Yeah. So I'm going to actually recommend The Hobbit. The Hobbit. Yeah, and so I actually I have a long relationship with The Hobbit. I read it every time uh, at this time of year. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't know that about yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, started with my mom when I was about four. And we kind of continue to do this over and over again. Wow. Um, anyways, and so what I like about it is that it's uh, it's a light, kind of easy read, obviously compared to the Lord of, Lord of the Rings, uh, but it has these really great descriptions of summer in it. Wow. Uh, and references to nice, like, wild strawberries and all these kind of elements. Uh, so there's something about that book that fits very nicely with the feeling of spring and kind of embellishes it a bit. That's great. And that's Tolkien that wrote The Hobbit, is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, so Return to the Hobbit have nice, uh, plentiful descriptions of spring and summer. Yeah. That sounds great. I'm going to uh, recommend... Something a little bit in the opposite vein. I'm going to recommend a newly released history book. Um, And it is by Dennis uh, Molinero. 
and it's called An Exceptional Law, Section 98 in the Emergency State, 1919-1936. Basically, the book uh, showcases how the emergency law used to repress labor activism during the First World War became normalized with the creation of Section 98 of the Criminal Code following the Winnipeg general strike. That sounds Um, great. Yeah, and, you know, what I like about these uh, history books is they take something relatively mundane, yeah. Uh, and they kind of trace it back in, I'm going to almost say like a genealogical form, yeah. right? So like, what are the key events? What are the key moments in time um, that really defined how something works? So in this case, you know, probably a relatively obscure section of the criminal code, but during a particular period of history had really impactful effects. Well, and also I think that focus on the mundane is really important. Like if I recall what happened in Toronto, Right, remember yeah, the, 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 the G20 ma- protests, the G20 yeah. protests and the mass lockdown, and a lot yeah. of that, a lot of those rights to do so, rights, rights, right, yeah, quote to lock up all those people, was based upon some archaic law about protecting critical infrastructure. Right, exactly. So yeah, yeah that sounds like a sounds like a fantastic project. Yeah, so I would recommend um, getting on board with that one. If you want to find uh, Dennis on Twitter, he is on our feed, so uh, he follows us and we follow him, and we are on Twitter at the underscore sim underscore pod uh, if you have questions concerns comments or considerations for us you can email us anytime at semi-intellectual at gmail.com our website is the sim.podbean.com matt uh, is dutifully manning the facebook page and we are at the sim pod that's all one word we're on itunes we're on stitcher we're on google play we're on your podcatcher of choice please leave us some readings some reviews it really helps the show uh, again big thank you Aaron for joining us third installment uh, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with his fourth uh, but in the meantime um, you know catch up on uh, the rest of the Simpod episodes that you haven't listened to looking forward to it well thanks a lot for joining us see you next time folks get back now make your brain take some facts